So uh, before we start the, this morning's uh, sermonette, uh, I thought that I would just mention that it, it, in this text this morning, in the way we're talking about, uh, I'll be talking about the topic of mental health, obviously, but also the topic of suicide. So if any, any of those are um, triggering for you in any way, just be aware and conscious of that to, to care for yourself, however you may need that. Um, there's a funeral of a, of a young man at a church I was pastoring, a Methodist church back in the suburbs, and... Uh, Unfortunately, one, one day we got a call, uh, the staff did, from the senior pastor to, to meet at the church for an emergency meeting. So we all gathered in the pastor's office around this table, and the pastor shared with us uh, that the night before, a young man who had grown up in the church, was 20 years old, and then had enrolled in the military, had been found, and he had um, experienced death by suicide. The group uh, sort of gasped. I didn't know this individual. I did not grow up with them in the church. But the children's director, who had been in her position for over 20 years, knew this young man. She said, I just can't believe this. He was the most kind, happy, vibrant, excited child, always having to sort of corral him together with the other kids because his excitement level always seemed to exceed everyone else's. She didn't understand. Then when we got together with the parents to begin to plan the service, both the parents and the siblings, the extended family, and the girlfriend all said they had not seen any signs of this, that he had never shared anything with them, that he was having thoughts of, of suicide or that he was experiencing depression or anxiety, but this letter that he left behind was riddled with years and years of an internal battle that they had never known of. They rehashed as we sat there, memories trying to think about ways that maybe they had missed certain signs, but none of it made sense. He, he just seemed so happy. He, it almost hit them like how many of us experienced this, the death of Robin Williams. They brought him up even as we were gathered. How this just didn't make any sense. We gathered for a service later uh, that, that week, and the pastor stood at the front of the room as I watched him go over to the baptismal font within the United Methodist Church, they baptize babies as infants. At Imago, we baptize people, whether they're infants or whether they're adults, whatever you and your faith tradition feel called to and led to as part of your theological beliefs. But in the Methodist Church, as I went and watched this pastor stand at this baptismal font, he touched the water and he raised it up and he said, at this baptismal font, this young man, and he named his name, was named here. Named and loved and beloved by God. And he said, as I stand at this font again, as he is now in eternity, I remind you again, as I did at the moment of this child's baptism, now as a 20-year-old, he is still a beloved child of God. You could see the family take this deep sigh of relief on the front row to hear the words of their pastor tell them, that their child, who they had baptized at that same font 20 years ago, was safely in the arms of the beloved God who embraced him there when he was just a baby cradling him. I'll never forget that moment. I'll never forget the anger that I felt that somehow the culture and the church at large had somehow failed him because he didn't feel he could share with his family, with his church, with, his, with the military, and even with his own girlfriend the internal struggles that he was having, that the, his own mental health state, the depression and the anxiety that he was crippled with for years, I thought, we have failed. 
not just as a church. Sometimes the church is totally disconnected from the culture, right? And it's like, wow, how is going the church fail that? But even our culture has failed it. And even the standards of the military have failed it. That people don't feel like they could ask for help. That few folks feel like they can't be honest and vulnerable and share and still stay in their positions of power, still stay in their positions of influence, still stay in relationship with people in their lives and be viewed in not a pitiful way, but in a way that in reality is we all struggle with some level of mental health. And perhaps if we were all honest with that, there would be less stigma around it. Some of us have struggled with it our whole lives nonstop. Some of us have struggled with stints of time in our lives. Some of us, maybe we haven't struggled with it yet, but our lives continue to persist, and perhaps a time in our lives will come when we will. And we want the same grace and mercy that others are asking of us now. Church and culture has, has struggled with this, right? We've, we've told people things like we talked about just a moment ago in the panel, this idea that just, just pray, have enough faith, right? We don't tell people that, in some faith traditions do this, but in a lot of our faith traditions, we don't tell people who have cancer or diabetes or heart problems to just pray it away or just have more faith. We tell them what? Perhaps you should seek professional help. Perhaps you should even take medicine. Why is it on this topic that so often we think that there's a different solution? We often tell people with mental health challenges that um, God is testing them. God is testing them. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that said. And uh, Reverend Alba Onferio, a spiritual strategist with Soul Force State, she says, I don't believe God gives us mental illness or cancer or any other suffering as a test of our faith or a punishment for lack thereof. And I know from the incredibly high statistics of suicide among certain marginalized communities that sometimes we are absolutely faced with more than we have tools to handle. But she's trying to combat the idea that so often we tell people that God never gives you more than you can handle. He's just testing you. Reality is, is so often many are get to the point when they clearly have reached more than they can handle. And I don't think God has God's hand in that at all. I think we have failed to help them handle. And when I say we, I'm included in the we. We failed to give folks with mental health uh, opportunities to serve in the church. Chris, I had no idea you were going to share that today, but I'm so glad you did. Because I also didn't serve as pastor here when you served on leadership team in that time. And I'd love to know the beauty that existed during that time that I'm just completely irrelevant and, and ignorant to. That there is space for people. I always knew that, but I love the application, the practical story. That there is space for people no matter where you are on your mental health spectrum. That, that you are welcome to serve here. That we don't view you as somehow weak in faith or unreliable or unpredictable. That's not the church we want to be and I don't think that's the church Jesus was ever trying to create. What if folks, what if folks felt that they could share openly and honestly that perhaps they're struggling with, being, with bipolar or schizophrenia or suicidal thoughts or anxiety or depression or panic attacks or are grappling with post-traumatic stress disorder, or obsessive-compulsive tendencies, or uh, specific phobia. You, you name it, the list goes on. This isn't exhaustive. But what if people felt like they could share that honestly? I'm grateful to serve in a church where that exists. But I'm also grateful to serve in a church where we can admit that we somehow, sometimes, screw it up still. And there's still room for growth. Because the church is not just an institution, but it's each of us as people learning to respond well and to love people well when they share these things with us. We can put it on paper that, yeah, we're a welcoming place like that, but unless we, the people, do something to actually make it happen, 
then the ethos and the paper really matter very little. In the story today, we, we see very interesting uh, picture play out, I think, of, of this idea of what mental health looked like perhaps, perhaps in the ancient world and what mental health looks like as we've developed understanding today. You said in, when you were talking in the panel, the three of you are there, uh, and this, this concept, right, that the latest thing in mental health, we're always developing, we're always changing, we're always moving forward. I think sometimes we look back, we can look back at a passage like this story we, we heard read today and go, oh my gosh, they're so irrelevant, they're so untouched, what were they doing? Why did they think this man who clearly had some struggles was a demon possession? Let us not cast aspersions and judgments, for we have always been evolving and developing and trying to understand the challenges that people have gone through. In their story today, we, we find that Jesus uh, comes to this, the, to, this, to this land where this is the only time we see recorded in Scripture where he goes. And this story you heard read today is actually in all three Gospels. There are very few stories that are in all three Gospels, and this is one of them that all three uh, of the Gospel writers decided to write. John usually goes rogue and does his own thing a lot of times. Um, but it's kind of interesting here that you, that you see this story just sort of like, like playing out in this beautiful way of that Jesus goes to this to, to this. Uh, to this land that's right across the sea. He travels from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other to go to meet this individual person. What's even more interesting, if you look into this story of where he goes, um, it, there's actually, if you read, depending on whose version of the story you read, they actually have a different name for where this hall plays out, like a different city. And so there's a lot of debate, like, well, was it two different cities? Were there two demon-possessed men? Did they just get the name wrong of the city? Like, what's the story here? Those two cities were very close to each other, so maybe somebody thought they were in that place, but they weren't because they didn't have GPS. Like, what's the reason for why there's a contradiction here of, of where this story plays out? I think, nonetheless, what's important, what they're trying to tell us in all three of these stories is that Jesus went from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other side. Why? To meet this man. And, and the city that he goes to uh, is quite interesting because it says that this man was living in tombs where people were dead, which often those who were experiencing homelessness would live in the tombs of the dead because it was a place of shelter, because it was often a cave. It was covering. But then also in this same land, this was, uh, uh, historians will tell you that it was mostly Gentile people that lived there because they were herding pigs in this area. And guess what? We, many of us probably know from Jewish culture, you're not supposed to eat pigs. You don't even associate with pigs. Quite frankly, anything that was dead or was a pig or was a Gentile was all considered unclean. All three of these things live in this city. Jews would have most likely avoided this city like the plague because it was all unclean. If you went there, it wouldn't have been considered good within Jewish culture. But guess where Jesus goes? I wonder if the disciples were like, what, you want to go there? You want to go all the way across the Sea of Galilee to go there today? Why? But as Jesus reaches the place that other people had avoided, other people had cast it out, other people had deemed unclean, when Jesus arrives, so he too he meets a man there on the edge of the sea. He hardly gets off the boat when this man comes out of this tomb that he's been sleeping and staying in and meets Jesus there at the entryway. The first thing I want us to think about here, uh, some three takeaways that I think are very similar to what we've heard in the panel today is, is I think that, that Jesus is calling us here to be stigma busters and to watch our language, to watch our language about how we talk about and how we think and how we exclude other people that others have deemed unclean or unlovable or, or unpredictable or unreliable. Perhaps instead that we, that we step back and we realize what Jesus did, which was that no one is too far or beyond the love of God and the relationship of God. The relationship too. It's easy to say, oh, I love that person. 
but never to attempt anything to love the person who's struggling with mental health that perhaps is different than yours and makes you feel uncomfortable. Jesus meets him there. One of the things I've learned to really try to be more sensitive to is in my language is the, is the way that I talk about folks, perhaps even, or the language that I use to describe things like, that's crazy, or that's psycho, or that's lunatic, or that's mental. Like, instead of using those, the terminology to realize that sometimes I'm talking to people who those words are deeply offensive and hurtful, just like there are certain things people call me in regards to my sexuality that people don't even think about that are actually offensive and hurtful, but that are just, you know, casual, that's so gay. Oh, you're referring that to a bad thing. Like, why, why are you connecting those things together, right? But we do that in our society, and we don't think about it. We just haphazardly use these words. I think Jesus is inviting us this morning to go to the places and to engage in the conversations with people who often are forgotten, cast aside. And in order to do that, I think sometimes we have to be aware of our language. The story continues, right? And, and we see in this passage this, that this man is in complete social isolation. If you read all three versions of this story, we find out a lot more details about this man. We find out that he's in social isolation. He's experiencing homelessness. He is without clothes. He's living in the tombs. He's, he meets Jesus with not an inside voice, but with shouting on the, on the edge of the shore. He appears to have lost total control of his own speech when Jesus asks him his own name. He goes into another voice being leaving that he is legion, another personality. Perhaps ten personalities is what we see. According to Luke, he perhaps has even taken on the personality of an animal because he's found howling in the woods at night. We also find out that he's an insomniac because it says that he's running through the woods day and night. He's unable to sleep. And then we find out also from Luke that he's cutting himself. Some might say that he's clearly a danger to himself, and so they tell us in the story that they chain him up, but he resists the chains and breaks out of them even with pain that seems to exceed tolerance. We don't actually know that he's a danger to anyone else. It's not told us anywhere but here, but he's clearly a danger to himself. I think one of the things that's important to remember, like we heard this morning, is that, that mental health is on a spectrum, Right? And I think by all the things we hear shared in this story about this, about this man is that he's on a spectrum where I think he feels like he is, does have ten legions inside of him of demons. That's a lot of things that he's battling all at once and where has he been placed to deal with it? In a place where no one wants to be or will be. In total isolation alone, which we all know that in isolation alone is, can sometimes be even worse. We have experienced that over this pandemic. That even just for the smallest amount of time of even being locked in the house with just the same people can drive you crazy. <laughs> Literally, I just did it right there again. Watch my language. You know what I mean. Jesus, interesting in this very moment, um, is, is, does, does not necessarily have access, as maybe some of us would in modern day, to ways in which to help deal with some of his issues of mental illness, to bring relief to this moment for him. It's interesting to think about in pagan culture, they wouldn't have necessarily called this a demon, but they would have said that he, this person needed healing, and so they would have actually mixed sort of natural herbs and so forth. They would have probably called this uh, something that wasn't necessarily medicine per se, but they would have given someone this, uh, natural herbs, to try to dispel some of the anxiety or feelings or fears that they're having. A lot of the medicine we have today also comes from natural substances, just in a pill form. But in this moment, that, imagine that they had tried, I wonder if they had tried any of those means, but none of them worked for this man. 
There was more beyond what he could handle. And Jesus meets him in this moment. And supernaturally, Jesus delivers him of all of the internal battle and demons he's facing. can't help but stop and think about the irony of the fact that this, that this story is told in all three passages, in all three books, and in all three books, there's the same story that comes right before this, which is actually kind of rare. A lot of, the, a lot of times the stories are in different orders, but the story that comes right before the one we heard today is the story of Jesus calming the sea. I think it is by no chance that we see Jesus both take control over a sea that is raging as well as the sea that is raging of war of demons inside of this man. Theologian Lender Keck says, by responding with the name Legion, the man acknowledges that he no longer had any individual identity. Somehow he had lost his name when Jesus asked him, what is your name? He had lost his identity. All that was left was a boiling struggle of conflict, of forces between his head and his body. It was as though a Roman legion of war was raging within him. And Jesus finds him in this moment. Jesus finds him in this moment and he calms the sea raging in him, the storm. I think the other thing Jesus is calling us to in this very moment is to practice the ministry of presence. Sometimes when folks are struggling with depression or anxiety, what we want to do is we want to be right there, right? We want to be there for them and help them push through it and help them maybe turn the corner or... Whatever it may be. And, and so I think sometimes when that happens, that's a hard line to walk, right? I mean, Jesus comes to the shore and meets this guy right there. And when Jesus meets him right there at the edge of the shore, reality is, is the guy's like, leave me alone. I don't want you here. What are you doing here? Why are you here? And Jesus has to, in that moment, decide, does this person, is this person inviting me to engage? Or is there something beyond this man that has taken over and asking for help? deep within the voice. And that's some of the hardest thing to have to discern. I, I, I wish I was Jesus and I could discern that more clearly. I could see the heart and the mind and the soul and the body and have, have be able to discern that because sometimes that's a hard line to walk to know when someone just needs space and when somebody really needs me to be present in a way that perhaps they're not willing to ask for or perhaps they don't even see themselves thinking about um, the ways in which we, I think we're called sometimes to care for people. I can remember um, I, I had a really growth, big growth opportunity for myself when it comes to mental health. Um, I, when I was serving as a chaplain at Northwestern Memorial for a residency, all, all hours of the night we would get our, our, our buzzer, would, our pager, like we were still in like the you know, 1990s or something, would go off and we would have to go off to somewhere and, and provide care. We often didn't know what we were being called to. There was one particular night when I was, got called to a room. And before I went in, the nurses said, the person in there has X, Y, Z. They were all a, a wide array of mental health challenges. They said, it's time for that person's medicine, and they are not allowing us in. They are not taking it. They are resisting at every turn. And they said, but they need this, and if they don't take, need this, take this, we're going to have to restrain them. And this person has a history of experiencing sexual and physical assault. We don't want to hold them down because we realize it will trigger them, and it will probably throw them even more into outrage. 
And I said, well, what do you want me to do? Why did you call me? I, did, you call, did you page the wrong guy tonight? And they were like, no, we, we want the chaplain. I'm like, do you know what I do? Do you? And one of them, the ladies, chuckling, said, well, we want you to exercise her. And I looked at her and I said, um, that's a little offensive. And she immediately was, was drawn back and she said, oh, I was just kidding. And I said, I, I just don't find that funny. And with that, I turned around and I went into the room thinking, I don't, I don't know why I'm walking away right now. I don't really know why I'm going in this room. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I sat down and walked into the room. I sat down and there was the person at the edge of their bed. They were really wound up. And I just went in and I sat down in the chair across to them and I said, how's your evening? Just a simple question. And about an hour later, that person was no longer on the edge of their bed, but they were actually tucked in their bed with their blankets over their head, calm, breathing normally. And they said, I think I'm about ready for bed. <laughs> I said, okay. I said, would you be willing to take your medicine before you go to bed? She said, that might help me sleep. And I walked out of the room. I told the nurses, I think she's ready for her medicine. They went back in. And the next day I went by right before their shift was over for the evening. And I said, how is she doing? And they said, we don't know what you did. I said, I just listened. And the other one said, and that's why we called you. She said, that's all we needed. We just needed someone to listen. We have a million things to do tonight. We couldn't sit there and listen to her for an hour, but we know you could enough to calm her down so that I could come in. In that moment, it made all the sense in the world to me. To practice the ministry of presence. Sometimes when we're at a point of mental health break, sometimes we just need someone to listen. Sometimes we just need to not feel alone for a moment. And sometimes we need to have someone listen. Sometimes we need someone to listen and we need to not have to filter our emotion to be able to yell and scream and cry and be upset until it's all out and we can crawl underneath the sheets and pull them up over our head and say, okay, I'm ready for bed. Jesus, in this story, when I read it today, he reminded me in a deep way the beauty of the practice of presence in the midst of mental health. Is it the solution to everything? No. She still needed her meds at the end of the night. But she wouldn't have taken them unless she felt heard first, until her emotions were calm and she could see, yeah, I do need that tonight. The end of the story is really beautiful, and I invite the band to come. After Jesus delivers this man of this raging war of legion storms inside of him, the man asks a question. Can I come with you, Jesus, and the other disciples and take this journey you're on? Jesus doesn't tell him to get in the boat. Instead, Jesus tells him, no, go back to your family and tell everyone what I have done. back to your family and tell everyone what I have done. Jesus instead calls him to restore himself back in community. I am sure he felt isolated for so long. And the story tells us that he went and he proclaimed the great things Jesus had done for him. He was one of the first evangelists to the Gentile people. Jesus goes and he uses him in a dramatic way, restoring him to being in right mind, for himself in a place that the war that was within him, in him no longer took control, but he could have control over it. 
There were many things that happened in this story, some that perhaps are uncomparable, some perhaps that are unrealistic, some perhaps that may never happen for us, some things that may always be difficult for us to do for other people or for ourselves. But reality is, at the end of the day, I think what Jesus is calling us to here is a deep compassion for ourselves and a deep compassion for others, no matter where we find ourselves on the spectrum of mental health. I know for myself, as I lay on the plane here this morning, as I wrote this sermon this week, I really wrestled with my own memories of mental health while I was pastoring a church in Kentucky. I don't always share this openly and commonly and often, but I had gotten to the point, and I, and I know I've shared that before in my life where in 2015 I was so filled with self-hatred and self-sabotage and self-loathing and anger towards God and anger towards the church. The church was the last person I wanted to hug me and help me because I was angry with them for causing the pain to me. And I remember the morning when my depression had gotten so bad that I thought, I don't think I can get out of this bed and go preach this morning. The time had passed, past the point when I would usually have walked into the church to get ready, and my administrative assistant, my now best friend in Kentucky, texted me and asked where I was. The lights seemed dark in the parsonage next door. She didn't see anybody stirring or ready to come over across the street to the church to preach. She thought, clearly, today is a bad day. She was the only one who I had confided in over that year that I was severely depressed. She was the only one that I could tell my internal battles with. She was the only one that I could tell that I was planning how to attempt to die by suicide. Day after day, she would faithfully text, check in, make sure I was okay still. Make sure I'd eaten. Make sure I'd gotten out of bed. I asked her to tell me about her memories during that that time, and she told me this. She She wrote several things, but I'm going to share this quote with you. She said, I was totally not equipped to give you the help you needed. And when I could ask God what I could do, God would tell me just to love you more. Trying to help you reason through a choice, like are you going to be affirming of your sexuality or not, it was nothing that I could be helpful for. That was a journey you had to take. At the end of 2015, I did walk into her office one day and I said, I no longer think anything's wrong with my sexuality. I'm just afraid of the people that do. And I'm tired of them dictating my mental health state. I'm resigning. And I walked away from a toxic environment, and healthy environment that had left me on the verge of ending my life. And I tell her often, and I reminded her this week, I wouldn't be alive today if it wasn't for her. She didn't forget me. She wasn't scared of me. The thoughts I was having, the feelings I was experiencing, the mood swings I went through. She was just present. Sometimes pushing me. Sometimes just sitting with me. And I'm grateful to know that I have come through that. And if I ever go through a season like that again, where I am just down in depression and thoughts that seem to overtake me like a war raging and a, and, and, and a storm raging within me that I've come through it before and I've got a community here to come through it again. 
My prayer this morning is that we could be a church that could practice the ministry of presence to people who are in need. We could be a church that is careful and sensitive to the language we use. A church that is aware of the battles that not just are within other people that sometimes we avoid them, but the battles that are within ourselves. That we could love others the way we would want to be loved. That we could treat people equally, fairly, kindly. That we could love people in faith, not tell them to have more faith. May we be that people. And may the church lead the way in a culture that's trying to find a way. May we lead the way on this one, church. May we lead the way.